This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. We're currently in the middle of the festival of Sukkot, Chag Asif, the week-long harvest festival that marks the end of the agricultural year here in the land of Israel. And I'm broadcasting right now from my very own sukkah, my very own all-natural clubhouse, just a bit north of Jerusalem in the Gofna Hills, in the hills of Gofna, northern Judea, actually in the ancient Maccabean partisan camp that served as headquarters for the Judean underground during the first few years of our revolt against the Syrian Greek Empire. And I can't overstate how inspiring it really is to live in the middle of Maccabee HQ. And not only because I come from the same Hebrew tribe and sub-tribe and familial line as the family that launched and led that revolt and organized our fighters right here on this mountain, but also because living here is a constant reminder that I'm a character in a later chapter of the same incredible story that they were characters in. And just as they played important roles in their unique chapter, so should we aspire to play important roles in this current chapter of our people's story. The festival of Sukkot also happens to be unique on the Hebrew calendar in that it celebrates an event that takes place in the future. Most of Israel's festivals commemorate a past event, often a past victory, but Sukkot celebrates a future victory in the War of Gog and Magog. According to our people's ancient prophecies, the War of Gog and Magog takes place after the children of Israel have come back to our land, when an international coalition of powerful nations attempts to come against us and take Jerusalem from us. So what I find really interesting about celebrating a festival that marks an event in the future is it kind of puts me, it kind of puts us in the same boat as our patriarchs, as Avraham and Yitzchak and Yaakov and Sarah and Rivka and Leah and Rachel, who we understand celebrated Pesach, celebrated Passover, generations before Israel left Egypt, celebrated, uh, celebrated all the holidays on our calendar, even though a lot of the events that those holidays are based on didn't take place yet. And that's because these holy days, these dates on our calendar, don't merely mark events that took place once upon a time. The word olam in Hebrew, the, the word for world, olam, shares a root with ha'elem, like concealment. This world is a world of concealment. And every now and then, on certain points of the Hebrew calendar, a unique aspect of divine light shines into our world. So, for example, on the 15th of Nisan, a unique light of Chirut, the light of freedom, shined into our world. And therefore, it was on the 15th of Nisan that it would be appropriate for the children of Israel to leave Egypt. It also happened to be the 15th of Nisan when our freedom fighters at Masada took their own lives rather than be taken prisoner by Rome. I think also the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising began on the 15th of Nisan, meaning that the date itself presents unique opportunities and our ability to experience that divine light is really facilitated by the specific tefillot and rituals and customs associated with that day. So because our ancestors, because the patriarchs and matriarchs were sensitive to the reality of the world, they experienced those days as holy days and therefore on Pesach, Avraham would eat matzah even though his descendants were not yet even slaves in Egypt. 
So on Sukkot, we get a little taste of that because we are celebrating a festival that really marks a victory in a future war that hasn't taken place yet. So I thought that's interesting. I wanted to share that with listeners. And I, of course, wish all of our listeners a Chag Sameach. Now, speaking about playing our roles in this chapter of Jewish history, I'd like to welcome to the show a good friend and colleague, Justin Ellis. Justin is the executive director of Feel for Truth, an organization that really runs some great educational and social programming for young professional diaspora Jews in a growing number of cities throughout the United States. I've often described Feel for Truth as a gateway drug towards Jewish national consciousness, and I think it's a very good description of the work Justin does. So it really gives me great pleasure to welcome Justin to the show. Justin, welcome to the show. Hi, Yehuda. Chagim Uzmanim Lesasson. Thank you for having me on the program. I'm really excited to be here. Now, how would you best explain your work at Feel for Truth? I would best describe our work at Feel for Truth is that, you know, first off, uh, we're a nonprofit organization that really we are dedicated to preparing young leaders to have today's difficult conversations about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and obviously the issues that come with it. So that can obviously be a conversation about Zionism, about Israeli history, different components of Israeli history, as well as the specific components of the conflict or issues that tend to come up in conversation that people very much struggle to articulate or to understand how they feel and therefore how to talk about it. So that could be the issue of you know Jewish communities in the West Bank, the refugee issue, BDS, the accusation of apartheid and things of that nature. Justin, how did you initially get involved with FFT and how did you end up taking such a leadership role within the organization? Like, how did that journey unfold? So yeah, uh, Fuel for Truth as an organization was founded in the aftermath of 9-11. Um, I was a freshman in high school at the time, so I was not involved. I was obviously very young and uh, certainly not old enough to appreciate a lot of the changes that were going on in the world at the time and that we've seen further develop up until today. But the founders of our organization saw that a lot of the rhetoric uh, directed towards Israel, directed towards American Jews in the context of 9-11, whether it was accusations of that Jews were given advance warning all the way to the accusation that it was really the Mossad as opposed to Al-Qaeda who committed these attacks, that they understood that this type of anti-Semitism and hostility toward Israel was going to brew in the years to come, especially for American Jews. And it was up to them to create a program, a platform, an outlet where young Jews could really come to terms with Israel, understand Israeli history, and really to see themselves as characters in the Jewish story and in Israeli story. The way that I first got involved, or I think it's better appropriate for me to kind of talk about where I was in order to understand where I went, was that I grew up in kind of a very traditional uh, Jewish New York City suburbs, 20th century type of environment, which was to say that I always knew I was Jewish. I always knew Israel was a good thing. But the way in which my religious upbringing was represented, certainly in the environment I was in, kind of painted me as, you know, you were white, just like, you know, the Irish, just like the Italians. But rather than, you know, praying on Sunday, you prayed on Saturday. And it was very much in that bubble in which I grew up. And it wasn't until I got to college where I really got to see different types of people, engage with different types of people and understand that the world was not fully the way I previously understood to be, uh, that's also when I started to connect with Zionism. And I want to be very clear that it was very much Zionism in particular, which is to say that, you know, as someone who... When you say Zionism, what does that mean to you? 
Sure. What Zionism means to me, or certainly meant to me at the time, was very much the connection of, of a Jew to the Jewish nation state. The understanding that this is our country, this is where we belong. And while I still believe a lot of those things are true, I would say a big difference at the time was that it was much more shallow in nature. And that's why I think it's appropriate for me to distinguish that it was really my Zionist identity that was flourishing at the time and not a Jewish one, which is to say that even as I became more interested in Israeli history and the characters that allowed that history to unfold, my interest in things that were plainly Jewish from a spiritual and a ritualistic level did not actually grow at the same time. So I think it's important to distinguish that, that back in the day when I was a college student, I kind of used Zionism as an onboarding platform to get more deeply in touch with what it meant to be a Jew. Mm -hmm. Okay, meaning to a certain extent, Jewish national consciousness. Yes. Right, we, we've actually had uh, John Lowe, the founder of Fuel for Truth. You know, you mentioned how the organization was founded after 9-11 by a bunch of New York Jews. So John was on the Next Stage podcast, I think episode 16. So if listeners are interested in hearing his story or the work that he's done since moving on from Fuel for Truth over at Legion Alpha, be sure to check out episode 16 of The Next Stage. And that interview took place at a time when there was really an upsurge of violence against Jews in the New York area. You know, before COVID, I don't know if people remember this. Uh, Justin, do you remember that before the coronavirus hit, there was this kind of upsurge of violence against Jews in certain areas? You re recall that? I do. Uh, I mean, I live in Queens, so it was kind of hard to avoid not knowing about it. Uh, granted, a lot of it was in Manhattan and Brooklyn, but still, you know, we were very aware in terms of the reports that were happening on a daily basis, whether that was just anti-Semitic attacks or, um, you know, displays uh, in the city. But also, I think what you were more alluding to was those who were notably Jewish, meaning that they were, as I think John would describe, they were wearing the uniform of the team, you know, Haredim, those who were more outwardly Jewish and recognizably Jewish, they were being targeted disproportionately or at enhanced rate in certain neighborhoods in Brooklyn. Right. So Fuel for Truth is not an organization that really deals with combating anti-Semitism per se, but there is an overlap in membership, correct? Like there are people who graduate from your bootcamp program, and I guess it's probably appropriate to let you talk about your bootcamp program, but they graduate from that program and end up participating in Legion Alpha, correct? There's a lot of overlap. Uh, you know, the way we kind of describe it is that FFT, Fuel for Truth, trains the mind, Legion trains the body. So there's a lot of overlap in terms of the leadership and certainly the participants. Uh -huh. I see. So you were saying that you, you really connected to what you call Zionism, Jewish national consciousness, Israeli history, the figures who made that history possible. Uh, but you distinguish that from, from a Jewish identity. Yeah, I do. I think a big reason for that is, you know, like I mentioned, I grew up in kind of the stereotypical Jewish suburb. And with that came a certain perception, persona, and understanding of who and what a Jew was. And my one of the things that very much attracted me to Zionism was that it was very much counter to that perception, that rather than Jews that were weak, it was Jews that were strong, rather than Jews who weren't you know, comfortable with who they were. It was Jews who were incredibly comfortable with who they were. And those that, you know, had their own language, had their own culture, and certainly they expressed it in such a way that they knew who they were and what they were about in this world, 
which I at the time being sort of in between identities or really trying to figure out where I was, I was not getting that from Jewish communal institutions that I had growing up, certainly not the ones on my college campus. And so Israel for the sake of Israel is really what kind of attracted me. It, very much an Israeliness uh, was very much what um, was a gravitational force for me. And you lived here for a while, right? Yeah, I did. After I graduated college, um, you know, smack in 2009, 2010, uh, great recession, job market wasn't so great, but that wasn't the only reason. A big part of it was I really wanted to see and understand Israel for myself. So I bought a one-way ticket to Israel. I ended up doing a great program through Massah called Career Israel. It was an internship placement program. And uh, I mean, I enjoyed the jobs that I had. One turned into a full-time job and I stayed for a while after. But the great thing about that experience was that it really allowed me to see and understand this country, its people, my connection to the land, in obviously a way that I would not be able to from a distance. It was very much a full immersion program, not only in which what you know Massa provided and advertised, but it was very much an immersion program for me, really diving into and understanding my Jewishness in a way that from the diaspora, I couldn't get just from Zionism alone. Right. Well, I think in general, Massa is a good program. Massa provides a lot of great internship opportunities. In fact, you know, we at the Vision Movement also receive uh, Massa interns every now and then, Career Israel and other organizations that facilitate the internship. So that's, that's a great program that we appreciate. So how'd you end up at FFT? Great question. So I came back from living in Israel. Um, I staffed a birthright trip or two in between. And one thing that I really appreciate from that birthright experience, and you know, I had not gone on birthright. I wasn't eligible to because I did this Massah program. And staffing it, the one thing that clicked with me immediately was that as much as I love Israel, as much as I was, you know, developing a real Jewish national consciousness and you know, finding my place in the story, the one thing that was very, very unique and special about staffing birthright was that I got to be someone's either initial or really formative influence and experience when it came to developing their connection to Israel, developing their connection to the Jewish story. So really being the person that was helping facilitate that process for someone else was more rewarding, more satisfying than anything that I could have possibly imagined. Um, and um, my old roommate when I was living in Israel was already involved in Fuel for Truth or a coworker of his was at the time. So that's how I learned about the organization, but it was through the combination of that birthright experience and seeing what FFT was providing for us as participants that I made that connection. And therefore, not only did I just love my experience with the program and want to give back, it, I felt it was essential for me to take a leadership role and to further offer that to those who would come after me. And now you're the executive director. I am. And you're training the participants who come into the door. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, it's been a real pleasure. I mean, I was doing this on a volunteer basis for a number of years. Um, now I've been doing this full time for almost as many. So we're talking uh, close to eight years at this point. Wow. And first of all, can you explain to our listeners what boot camp is? Like, what is FFT's boot camp? How many cities are you? And I know that you're primarily based in New York. I know when FFT started, it was a New York-based organization. That's how I came into contact with the organization, or at least when I started speaking for uh, different cohorts of boot camp. It was in New York, but I know you've opened up in other places as well, Boston, Miami, where else? 
Sure. Uh, just to clarify, boot camp is our primary program. It's for young professionals. It's a multi-week class in which we really dive into uh, the Israeli history, the issues of the conflict that we were talking about before. But I think more uniquely and more importantly, especially in today's world, the way we see uh, polarization, media silos, the way people are, are very negatively interacting with each other, especially when it pertains to very emotionally sensitive and political subjects, is that Fuel for Truth is very much dedicated to helping people facilitate civil and persuasive conversations about the conflict, about Israeli history, uh, very much in a way in which your emotions are not controlling you, and certainly in a way in which you can actually understand and appreciate why people have the opinions that they do, even if you, they, your understanding of those opinions are not the same. Prior to COVID, we were offering in person in New York, Miami, Boston, Los Angeles. Now that everything is online, it's accessible to young professionals around the country. And uh, this is a program that really dives into the major history of Israel, the major components of the conflict, things that tend to come up in conversation, uh, but also more uniquely, and I think uh, this is what separates Fuel for Truth from a lot of organizations, is that our focus isn't just for you to know this information. You know, it's not just here's an encyclopedia or here's a book, go read it. It's what do you do with that information? What do you do with that content in the real world? So a lot of our training and a lot of this program is really about how do you facilitate civil and persuasive conversations about these issues, about issues that are very emotionally sensitive, issues that are very much rooted in people's understanding of themselves and reality. And therefore, they're very sensitive and hostile when those issues or those concepts are threatened. And so a lot of what we do is really about teaching people how to control their emotions rather than emotions controlling them. And also, how do you have a conversation with someone when there's un their understanding of reality, their understanding of that particular subject does not mirror your own. Right, that's important. So what kind of tips do you give? What, what do you train people to do in those situations? Sure, so first things first, I would really think it's important for people to recognize, and I know this is easier to do in principle than it sometimes is in a real conversation, is that every person is unique. You know, every person has their own environmental baggage, their own subjective particular experiences that have helped form the opinions that they have in the world. And therefore, you know, trying to respond to people with kind of, you know, sound bites or like sort of these clever quotes or facts or figures, it may not work on the same people the same way because they don't appreciate it. They don't relate to it the same way. So the first thing that we really try to focus on with people is to appreciate that everyone is different everyone is unique and therefore your conversations, your interactions need to reflect that as well. Right. So that already sets you apart from the Hasbara industry, from like the majority of pro-Israel organizations trying to have these conversations in the diaspora. Yeah, I think so as well. And to kind of take that a step further, one thing that, you know, I've, you know, my experience with Fuel for Truth isn't just that of an educator. I'm also a student and not to say I'm a student in the program. I was, now I teach it. But it's to say that I'm always learning, I'm always growing, and it isn't me just relaying this information to new people. It's also I'm developing as an educator, as an Israel activist, as someone who's connected to Jewish history and the Jewish story. And certainly one thing that has been helpful for me over the years and certainly is now much more reflective in our programming is really to appreciate why people have the perspectives that they do. That isn't to say you have to outright legitimize it or agree with it. But 
whether your goal is to get someone to agree with you, or even if your goal is to sort of eliminate this perspective from the world, you genuinely need to understand why that person understands it as they understand it themselves. Meaning not to superimpose your opinions, your understanding onto them. Really people for the most part, when they tell you how they feel about themselves and how they see things, they're telling you the truth. You don't have to agree with that truth, but it is in your best interest as a communicator, as an activist, to really try to understand it from their perspective and their point of view. No, that's very well said. I 100% agree. And I think that leads me into my next question. Like, to what extent would you say that FFT provides an unbiased approach to understanding Israel's history, Israeli politics, and our conflict with the Palestinians? I mean, this is a pro-Israel organization, so I assume that there's an expectation of biases to some extent. Sure, and I'm really glad you asked that. Uh, first things first, um, our one thing I think that also makes our program very special is the diversity of participants. You know, we have people who come in, their only Jewish or Israel experience is going on birthright, or, um, you know, maybe they had a bar mitzvah, that's really it for some they spend some time in Israel, you know, like on a long-term program like I had. Maybe some of them lived over there, you know, had made Aliyah previously. And others are Israelis themselves who now live in the United States or those who are actually more deeply religious. And they're all coming perhaps for different things, but they all end up getting what they were looking for plus the other thing. Those that are looking for a more detailed understanding of history because they didn't have it before, they're getting the history. Those who know the history are getting a lot of the details and the hidden truths that they didn't really understand or that was not taught uh, in a previous program or environment. Um, but for some, they're really just looking to connect with other people who share their passion, who share their interest in Jewish history in Israel, and they're finding that as well. Uh, but to your question, as far as biases, you know, any, in my opinion, anyone who tells you that they are not biased or their program is not biased, is not telling you the truth, or at least they don't understand what biases actually means and what it represents. You know, or, we, or, or they're just not passionate about the material. Like meaning even as a teacher, I agree with you, like a, as a teacher, I often tell my students that I am a biased educator and that shouldn't be a problem because I'm very upfront about all of my biases, uh, unless I think it gets in the way of their educational process at any given point. And I, I think this whole notion of having like unbiased education is, is largely a myth. And uh, if you show me a teacher, especially a teacher who teaches this type of content, who deals with this type of content and, you know, the histories of nations and wars and conflicts, et cetera, and claims to be unbiased, uh, that person either couldn't care less about the subject he's teaching or he's not being truthful. Yeah, I would argue it's just not even possible. You know, we as human beings, like I mentioned before, and what distinguishes FFT is really much the fact that we are respecting, appreciating, and valuing the fact that people are coming from different places. And like I said, not to agree with them, but to understand them and to appreciate that. So when it comes to biases, you know, and fuel for truth, you know, people ask me, is it a left-wing organization or a right-wing organization? And the answer I try to give or get them to appreciate is that the answer is yes, it's both that we try to facilitate a dynamic in which those who more lean to the left um, are being recognized or being validated, but also we're including information that's coming from a different place to challenge them in a way in which they can actually receive it and they can process it in a healthy manner. And the same goes for those who come on the right. So we try to be inclusive of multiple biases when it comes to discussing Israeli history, when it, dis when it comes to discussing components of the conflict 
Um, obviously, as you mentioned, we are a pro-Israel organization, or you know, as that's obviously framed and used in this industry, that you know, we do have an expectation that our participants uh, value Israel as the sovereign national embodiment of the Jewish people. But in terms of what policies they have to be seeking or what opinions that they have, we don't have any type of prerequisite for that. You know, if you think the state is too secular, you're entitled to believe that. You think it's too religious, also entitled to believe that. You love the nation state law, you hate it. That's also okay. That's not what we're here for. We're here to help you think more deeply and considerably about these issues. And then, as I mentioned before, more importantly, how do you actually translate that to a real conversation that you're going to be effective and persuasive in the real world? Right. I find some of your terminology a little bit interesting. You know, one thing that I often push back against on the show is even these categories of religious and secular and right and left when it comes to the state of Israel or Israeli society, because I think to a certain extent that's almost Americanizing or Westernizing our understanding of Israeli society. I think religious and secular are, in my mind, very Christian concepts. I don't think they're very relevant to the people of Israel. I think uh, within Israeli society, you have Israelis who are very connected to their people's ancient culture and heritage and people who are not, people who are much more influenced and see themselves more as just part of Western civilization. So I think that when we use terminology like secular and religious, uh, we're almost imposing a foreign paradigm onto a society where it doesn't really fit. And I'd even argue the same thing is true when we talk about left and right, because you know Israel is one of the only countries I know of where the term left wing essentially refers to a westernized ruling class. And those who control most of the wealth, most of the cultural institutions in the country, the media, academia, the Supreme Court, until recently even elected officials. And that's not what left wing really means in in other parts of the world. Uh, I think even in the United States, there's a lot of confusion probably between like liberal and left. But uh, a lot of what people mean when they speak about the Israeli left is really what we can call liberal Zionism. I think that would be the term for it. At least it's um, it's equivalent on the American Jewish scene, right? Like organizations like J Street, uh, et cetera. Uh, yeah, but- I definitely agree with that assessment. And, you know, I think one thing that's really important that, you know, we try to emphasize in the program really is, you know, terminology and how certain words mean things to different groups of people. And it's not always the same way that you relate to it, which is often how these conversations devolve so quickly. You know, when your understanding of what occupation means is something different than someone else's, whether you're talking about settlements, Palestinians, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, But uh, very much to your point, we're really trying to get people in a place in which they can approach these terms from a much broader perspective, or certainly not one in which is like rooted in um, sort of a dogmatic like monopoly that, you know, not everyone has like, there isn't just one term for a word. You know, we each relate to it in a different way. We each contextualize in a different way. And uh, certainly to appreciate that in the real world. Right. I find often with many conversations between people who represent different political camps or different national groups in conflict with one another, the same words mean very different things. Like you mentioned occupation. Another one we spoke about before is Zionism. I think the word Zionism means radically different things to most Israelis than it does to most Palestinians and certainly pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian people in the diaspora as well. 
uh, a lot of these words, you know, really have radically different meanings in different camps. And it's really important, like you said, to define our terms so we can unpack what this word means when we have this conversation. So we know we're having the same conversation because often I find that a, a lot of people end up really arguing past one another instead of engaging in the same conversation that could actually lead somewhere uh, potentially constructive. Absolutely. And in a lot of those cases, all that one person would have to do is ask the other to clarify the term that they're using. Just to ask them when you use that word, what does that mean to you? Or how are you understanding this word? Um, and instead, you know, it would avoid a whole lot of pain and uh, screaming and shouting and a lot of what we see in the world today. Right. I remember um, uh, around, I guess, 11 years ago or so, when I started doing a lot of this piece work, I remember being in a, in a meeting with a Palestinian who kept using this word occupation over and over again. And I was getting offended because on the Israeli side, we're used to hearing this word occupation as uh, inferring that we don't belong in the Judea and Samaria regions. Like we don't belong in what we consider to be the heart of our country, the cradle of Jewish civilization, uh, that, that we're aliens that need to be removed. And the more he used this term occupation, the more angry I got. And eventually I just, I said, wait a minute, can you do me a favor? When you use that word, explain to me what you mean. And he said, checkpoints, walls, uh, restrictions on freedom of movement, a military bureaucracy that controls the lives of millions of people. Um, he didn't say anything I had a problem with. He, the things he said were, in my opinion, are objectively wrong. You know, I could understand certain arguments to justify them in, in specific situations. But for the most part, these are all things we can agree shouldn't be imposed in a vacuum. And I'm okay with ending all of that. I'm okay with ending the occupation. But I asked him, can I, as a Jew, live in the West Bank? And he said, sure. And then I asked, well, can the Jewish people, assuming that there are no walls or checkpoints or curfews or restrictions on freedom of movement or military bureaucracy, assuming that you get to be an equal citizen, can Israel, can the Jewish people have political sovereignty here? And he said, sure, but we have to be equal. And at that point, I realized that we really need to clarify terms because a word he kept using that was upsetting me actually turned out to mean something I agreed with. It's amazing how even just in a conversation like that, we can discover so much about someone and, and certainly in a way that is very counter to our perception of who they are and what they represent merely just by asking an open-ended question like that. And that isn't even a great, I mean, that is a great tool for potentially solving our conflict, but also it's a great tool for actually having much more civil and persuasive conversations, those in which people are actually going to want to talk to you again, certainly in greater quantity and quality. And through that, you can actually talk about more substantive issues rather than getting stuck in a lot of these foundational terms that people get very frustrated by because, like you said, means one thing to one person, it means something to somebody else, and they don't bother to clarify what that difference may or may not be. Right. I'm actually reminded of, a, of another story real quick. I and uh, a few of us were actually at, I think it was CSUN. It was some university campus in California, and we were running some event. And I noticed that there were a few female students, each wearing a hijab, just watching us really close to where we were. We're setting up this event and, you know, it looked like they were waiting for something to happen. So I was getting a little concerned. I didn't know what they were waiting for. So I walked over to them. I introduced myself and I asked, 
can I help you? And one of them said to me, are you a Zionist? And this was the question she had asked to decide whether or not she was going to engage me in conversation. So I understood that if I say, yes, I'm a Zionist, there's no conversation and whatever she's waiting for will likely happen and we're gonna have to deal with it. And I understood that if I said, no, I'm not a Zionist, I'd feel like a little bit of a sellout, you know, even though I think we can go deeper into what that word may or may not mean at this point in time and, and whether or not we really are Zionists in the post six day war reality. But what I ended up saying to her was, it really depends what you mean by that term. I definitely support Jewish liberation, but I'm also against settler colonialism. And she was just like, oh, cool. And you know that led to a conversation that lasted for roughly 20 minutes. Uh, then the reinforcements did show up. All these guys from SJP and the MSA showed up uh, who were coming to disrupt the event. But before they said anything, she said, you have to listen to this guy. That led to another half hour of conversation. And, and all of the like pro-Israel students who were organizing the event with us in the campus were just blown away, including like the Hillel staff and the campus rabbi. They couldn't believe that I, this Jew from the mountains of Northern Judea, is able to come and have a real deep civil political conversation with the MSA and the SJP on campus who they couldn't even speak to. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's just unpacking words. Yeah, very much unpacking words. And uh, you're actually reminding me, you know, we were holding class one time and this is back when we got to do this in person. We, uh, we went to a nearby bar after to socialize. That's uh, part of the good time that we facilitate. And yeah, that, uh, hold on, I just want to stop you right there. That is part of the FFT boot camp experience during non-corona times, correct? When, when corona is not tearing through the planet, somebody comes to boot camp live, not online. That includes a couple free drinks at the bar afterwards with the group. Correct. Barring global pandemics, what we usually do is we serve dinner beforehand, buffet style, always kosher, obviously. We do class and either, depending on the city, we either bring bottles of wine in during the program or we go to a nearby bar after to socialize. Mm -hmm. Usually we really make it worth people's while to show up. Right. Now, so meaning that this is a program where someone is not just learning how to be uh, better at communication, by the way, better at communication in general. I, I think a lot of the uh, skills we're talking about here aren't just relevant to conversations about Israelis and Palestinians and Jewish history and identity. You know, these could be very helpful tools in a marriage or in a work relationship or whatever. Yeah, these are not uh, unique to Israel. They are not unique to Jewish issues. Um, you know, as I may have alluded to before, I think one of the reasons why they are so helpful here is because many of us are so bound up in what these words mean and certainly how we relate to these topics because they are core to our understanding of ourselves. They are core to our understanding of the world and how we fit into it. And when we feel those things are threatened, we the fight or flight does kick in and uh, you know people act accordingly. But uh, you know, to add on to what you're saying, this could also be used for uh, domestic, uh, when I say domestic, I mean uh, United States, uh, political issues, whether that's abortion, Second Amendment, it doesn't matter. This is still a helpful exercise in getting people to understand where the other is coming from and certainly to understand that you may not actually be coming from a different place. What conclusions you're coming to or how you want to manifest those feelings into policy may be different right now, but as to what you're considering or what you're ultimately hoping to have at the end of the day may not be so different. Right. I was actually going to say from the outside, you know, me living here in Israel, looking at the United States where you're based, 
the U.S. looks very, very polarized right now. I mean, the U.S. honestly looks like a nation about to tear itself apart. Specifically, I think, surrounding this upcoming election, you know, between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And this is an extremely polarized and polarizing election cycle in the United States. I don't think I've ever seen anything like it in my lifetime. Uh, yeah, not that I remember either. Yeah, so I think as polarizing as Israel's conflict with the Palestinians can be for a lot of people, I think one can argue that this current election cycle in the United States might be even more polarizing, especially with all of the different echo chambers that exist on different social media platforms. And people on both sides are really convinced this has to be like a fight to the death. You know, from the outside, it really looks like the United States could be on the verge of a civil war. So a lot of the tools that we're discussing here could probably also be beneficial to society in general where you are. Yeah, not even just beneficial. I mean, I think in today's world, today's environment, they are sorely lacking and we desperately need them, not just in the United States, but uh, in many societies, depending on what sort of the conflicting issues um, are present in that place. Right. So you're kind of jumping off from that point. To what extent would you say Fuel for Truth includes a component of transitioning participants from an Amerocentric view of political issues and current events to an Israel-centered perspective. Meaning, I think, you know, most people in the United States, including most Jews and pro-Israel Jews, tend to come with a, a paradigm, come to look at a lot of the issues taking place here through a very Western lens, a very American lens. I mean, one of the obvious examples is when elections take place here, it's, it's really hard for a lot of diaspora Jews looking in to avoid this like two-party system mentality. I think a lot of people over our last few election cycles, you know, we had three elections in a year and a half, not so long ago. And for the most part, I think the world, especially in the United States, was looking at this as kind of a, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu versus Benny Gantz, like two candidates to be prime minister, two parties to vote for, ignoring all of the other parties, you know, the, the many parties in our parliamentary system that also have an identity, also have a policy agenda, also represent a very specific constituency, you know, that has a voice in our political system. So do you find this often when you try to discuss Israeli issues with Jews in the diaspora, that they have trouble transitioning out of this Amerocentric paradigm, this American political paradigm? Yeah, I think it can be challenging for people. And, you know, even on top of that, I think it's very much reflective of what much of the American Jewish uh, sort of communal establishment looks like in the institutions that they've been running. Um, you know, I may have mentioned before that uh, I went to Hebrew school, you know, Tuesday, Thursday, occasionally on Sunday uh, as a child for many years. And I was desperately trying to get myself kicked out just because I wasn't connecting with anything that was there. I just thought it was a waste of time. But even the moments that I was in attendance and the moments I was paying attention, a lot of which this information was being related to me in the same way that I think many American Jews are experiencing uh, Israeli history and certainly just issues about the conflict in general are very much, like you said, from an outsider looking in, as opposed to them understanding and appreciating that they are also part of the Jewish story, that they have something to contribute, that they are also actually on the inside track, but the way they're evaluating is from the outside. So when it comes to practically how we try to facilitate that change or to get people to open up and to think about it a little differently in boot camp is, for example, when we're talking about Zionism, 
when we're talking about the underground, when we're talking about what uh, the Etzel and the Lehi did to free our country from the British, to really appreciate that these are not just some Jews over there who did this. These are our historical national heroes. And obviously at a different place in time, a different situation as any other Jew that you historically understand to be important in our history, whether that is Moshe Rabbeinu, whether that is Esther, you know, different characters in Jewish story are playing different roles at a particular time. And we want them to appreciate that not only are these characters no different, whether it's uh, Menachem Begin or Yair Stern or anyone else, but also that you actually have the potential of being the next person who does this, right? right? Every character in Jewish history at some point thought, how can I build upon or be the next whoever? But that also came with the challenges of appreciating that you are worthy of being that next person. You are worthy of being the next central character in our story. And that's where we really tried to change that perspective by diving deeper into this content. And to what extent does FFT facilitate a psychological shift from being part of a group, like an an ethnic minority or a cultural or religious minority within the United States to being part of the children of Israel, the Hebrew nation, the Jewish people in the land of Israel, living that story, the story of Jewish history. Sure. And, you know, first off, I think it's important to acknowledge that real, meaningful and lasting change is a process. Um, you know, you can think about anything in your personal life in which you've had to work towards something or to change your behavior or to become someone different. That requires a process. These radical changes as to who we are and how we see ourselves in the world, that doesn't change overnight. So not only do we really prepare for that in the way in which we teach the class, but we tell participants up front that, you know, this is a journey, right? After boot camp, you are not going to go from radically being one person to another. This, we want to be really the next, but also incredibly meaningful and effective step that you're taking to further realize your potential as a character in Jewish history and your connection to Israel. So in a way in which we talk about maybe more specifically as a particular subject, you know, if we're talking about Zionism, if we're talking about the history of the underground that liberated our country from the British, you know, the way in which we are talking about uh, the fighters of the Etzel, the fighters of the Lehi, you know, whether it's uh, someone as you know great and historical as we now appreciate them as Menachem Begin and Yair Stern, but to any of the other anonymous soldiers who you know fought for our liberation and fought to be the next characters in Jewish history, for them to appreciate that you yourself can be that person, that based on the situation that we have now, based on the conditions that will come throughout your life, you have that same opportunity. And more importantly, you are just as worthy of it. You know, right. you, uh, you have all the opportunity to play a major role in Jewish history, but from an educational perspective, that does require a paradigm shift from putting the story of the United States at center stage to really putting the rebirth of the Jewish people in our land at the center. Correct. And I would also say that's a lot of how we focus on this Israeli history. That is not from you know, looking at it from whether it's a, you know, European perspective or an American perspective, we really try to, you know, facilitate an experience in which is much more deeply considered as Israeli, as Jewish, and to understand that um, in which they are learning this information or where they're gaining these details to appreciate that they're learning about their own story, their own history, but also 
from the perspective of they are going to be further characters and participants in that story. Right. No, I think that's really important. So where can listeners find you? Where can listeners find Feel for Truth? I know you guys just put up a, a new website. Why don't you tell people where they can check you out? Uh, yeah, we have a new website. We love it. We want everyone to check it out. Uh, fuelfortruth.org. We are actually in the process of recruiting for this upcoming boot camp class that begins October 27th. Fuelfortruth.org is the place to go. Uh, apply to boot camp, and uh, it's an amazing educational experience. And I can obviously relate to that from personal experience, not only as a participant, but now obviously teaching this program for a number of years. Oh, that sounds great. Everybody go check out feelfortruth.org and uh, register. It's all online now, right? All online, young professionals, 22 to 40. But uh, as long as you've got an internet connection, you can participate. Mm -hmm. And will I be featured as one of the educators this year? Uh, Bizrath Hashem. So you'll be able to learn from people like me, Justin and others at Feel for Truth Bootcamp, feelfortruth.org. Justin, thank you so much for joining me. I wish you a Chag Sameach and a Moadim Lesimcha. This is Yudah Kohen of the Vision Movement, wishing all of our listeners a Chag Sameach, Moadim Lesimcha, Chagim Uzmanim Lesason. This is the Next Stage Podcast. If you haven't already, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and or Spotify. And please leave a rating and review because that can really help us get our message out to a much wider audience. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at visionmag.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. And you can, of course, check out the show notes at visionmag.org backslash the next stage 370.